Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 9 through 13. 1 Thessalonians 3, 9 through 13. 1 Thessalonians was written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians living in the city of Thessalonica. This early epistle is written to encourage these believers in their faith and to also help them understand more about the eternal things of God. Up to this point, Paul's commended these believers for their faith, hope, love, service, and heart for the lost. He's defended himself, his ministry, and his motives. And then, as we've seen in chapter 3, he's expressed his deep love and concern for them as they are suffering greatly for their faith. Paul ended last time by encouraging them to stay faithful and to stay focused in the midst of tribulations because, as we all know, the tempter is relentless and our call is to be more relentless in fleeing temptation and in pursuing Christ. Paul then encouraged them to stand fast in the Lord and now he prays for them. Let's look, verse 9. For what thanks can we render to God for you? For all the joy with which we rejoice for your sake before our God, night and day, praying exceedingly that we may see your face and perfect what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all His saints. Now here in verse 9, we we start out with the fact, which is this. Paul says, we give thanks to God for you. And that's actually a rhetorical question. What thanks can we render to God for you? And the sense of this rhetorical question is that words can't adequately express the thanksgiving to God that fills Paul's heart. How his thanks and his joy was overflowing to God every time that he remembered these believers. How good is that? This expresses deep emotion and even though words can't fully express what Paul feels, he tries his best to give expression to the deep gratitude that he feels. It's real, it's heartfelt, it's intense, and Paul is incredibly grateful. Note how Paul is grateful, yes, but look, Paul doesn't thank them. He doesn't thank them. No, he thanks God for them. That takes us back to verse 7 where Paul says that even though he and his friends were facing great affliction and great distress, look, the Thessalonian Christians too were facing persecution and affliction of their own. And they were not only enduring that, but they were growing in their faith and they were growing in their love. And when Paul and his friends saw that faith and that love in the midst of all that persecution... That's when they then gave great and intense thanks to God. In fact, Paul didn't even know how to express the thanks that he had to God because of their faithful endurance that the Thessalonian Christians had. So, Paul doesn't say, thank you. It's interesting. No. Paul thanked God for them. And so, the thanksgiving is Godward. So, Paul says, praise the Lord. (laughs) Praise the Lord for you. Praise the Lord for your faith and your love and your spiritual endurance. I cannot praise Him enough for you. 
And so we find that the steadfastness of the Thessalonian Christians is the catalyst that brings about Paul's continual rejoicing with all joy before God. Oh, that we would bring the same reactions in the Christians around us, right? As they see our faith and our love and our perseverance and our own godly example. Oh, that we would cause others to rejoice before God because of God's good and mighty work in us and through us. So that when others look at your faith and your love and your own perseverance in the faith, what's their reaction? Oh, is it this? God is good as they see you. God is good. Praise the Lord. Look what God has done in his or her life. God is amazing. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for her. Or, oh, God is the God of uh, mediocrity. God's the God of hypocrites. Look at him. He's cold and unloving and he cheats and she gossips and she faded and fled when the persecution came and he's indulging in sin even though he serves in his church every Sunday. God, eh, take him or leave him. What about you? Lord, help us. Lord, help us to be the catalyst of other people rejoicing greatly in God because of our faith and our love and our perseverance and our godly example. Like the Thessalonian believers caused Paul to rejoice greatly in God instead of doing the opposite. In verse 10, Paul mentions prayer. And here we see three things that Paul prayed for the Thessalonian Christians. And this first prayer in verse 10 has two parts to it. First, Paul prayed that they can see them and then also perfect what's lacking in their faith. Look, verse 10. Night and day praying exceedingly that we may see your face and... Perfect what's lacking in your faith. So there's some really intense prayer happening here. Look, night and day, they were praying. That doesn't mean that they prayed once in the evening and that they prayed once in the morning. And it doesn't mean that all that they did was pray all the time. No, it simply emphasizes the frequency of their prayers. So they're praying by night and they're praying by day, both during the night and during the day, during the long hours of the night, as well as during the busy hours of the day. It was just something that they were constantly doing. Why? Because prayer was a lifestyle to them. Prayer encompassed their lives. Prayer permeated their lives because they knew the power and they knew the importance of prayer. And the question is, do you pray like that? Do you pray like that? The word for prayer here, deomai, means to beg, to petition, to beseech, and to make a request. The word implies that there's an asking that's motivated by a sense of personal need. And who better than to go to God with your needs and with your requests for yourself and for others? Paul uses this word prayer in the present tense, and it again shows us that this was the habitual practice of Paul and his friends, praying night and day, praying continually to the God whom they love and to the God who they know hears. In the book Pilgrim's Progress, the last piece of armor that Christian, the main character, is given is the weapon of all prayer. This weapon was given to him because this is what will allow him to stand in good stead when all else fails. See, with this weapon of all prayer, Christian's told that he will now be able to prevail against everyone that will come against him in the valley of the shadow of death. Why? Because when he pours out his soul in prayer, that's then when he is the most formidable. 
In Luke 18, the Lord said that people ought to always pray and not lose heart, no matter how difficult the challenge is, no matter how formidable the enemy is, and no matter how hard the victory seems. So, here's the alternative. You either pray or else you lose heart. And the question is, do you want to lose heart? You want to lose heart? No, then pray. You got to be praying. What is prayer? Prayer is talking to God, right? The Lord God Almighty. Prayer is talking to the God of heaven and earth. Think about that. You, little old you, can talk to God. But it's more than that. See, prayer isn't just taking your laundry list of requests to God and then reciting them rotely. No. Prayer is communion with God. Prayer is a way to worship God. Prayer is something that greatly delights and pleases God. Proverbs 15.8 says that the prayer of the upright is his delight. And if our aim in life is to glorify God, and it is as Christians, then prayer should be a massive part of every Christian's life. Now look, biblically prayer is commanded, and biblically prayer is powerful. Can we deny that God calls his people to pray throughout the word of God? Isaiah 55.6, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near, and that means do it now. Is near. Matthew 7, 7 says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. And the way we ask, seek, and knock is through prayer. Paul tells us to pray continually, 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. And then Peter tells us to be serious and watchful in our prayers, 1 Peter 4, 7. So throughout the Bible, it's very clear that God's people are not only called to pray, but they must pray if they love the Lord. And God's people understand that, right? I mean, we love Him. I'm going to ask that again. God's people understand that, right? We love Him? Yes, okay, much better. We love Him. And so we must talk with Him. That makes sense. We must commune with Him in regular, heartfelt, and much prayer. So yes, prayer is commanded, but prayer is also powerful according to the Word of God. Biblically, when God's people pray, amazing things happen. Yes, God is a sovereign God, but God sovereignly chooses to work through His children's prayers, and the Bible is very clear about that. Jesus Himself knew the importance of prayer, and in His humanity, prayer was something that He needed to do intensely and on a regular basis. Jesus is pictured in prayer no less than 25 times in the Gospels, and many of those times it was all night. And if he prayed like that, what does that say about us today, who are so desperate, who are so needy? In Daniel chapter 9, I love this, Daniel's praying, he's presenting his supplication before the Lord. It's then that the angel Gabriel appeared to him and said, verse 23, at the beginning of your supplication, your prayer, The command went out. How good is that? He started praying. The command went out. In chapter 10, verse 12, it says this. Don't fear, Daniel, for from the first day you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. So clearly, prayer is powerful. It's very powerful. And again, God works sovereignly through the prayers of his people. As James 5, 6 26 says, is it 516 or 26? In my notes it says 526, I think it's 516. Okay, you check it out later. All right. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. 
So prayer is essential for a growing spiritual life. It is to encompass the life of any serious Christian. And every Christian should be a serious Christian. I mean, we're not playing bingo here, right? We're in a relationship with the Lord God Almighty who saved us from eternity in hell. And that relationship should be taken seriously. So, pray. Pray. Look, if we want a life that can be used mightily of God and for His glory, we must pray. If we want to thrive in Christ as a Christian and as a church, we must pray. If we want to truly redeem the time that we have left here, the precious time that's fading so quickly, we must pray. Prayer must encompass us. Prayer must permeate us. It must always surround us. Does it surround you? Andrew Murray said that prayer is the pulse of the Christian life. And the question for you, for us is, is your pulse beating strong today? Look what Paul adds in verse 10. When he mentions how he prays night and day for these Christians, and he says, night and day praying what? Exceedingly. Exceedingly. The word shows the intensity of the praying. That means over and above, overflowing, surpassing, beyond measure, exceedingly and overwhelmingly. And that is how Paul prayed for them. I mean, think about it. What a labor of love. If you really love someone, you will pray for them. This prayer expresses Paul's great love that he had for these Thessalonian Christians. So what did he pray? Two things. First, in this first part... (laughs) That he'd be able to see them again face to face. And then second, that he could supply what was lacking in their faith. Now, praying to see them is pretty self-explanatory. And even though Paul got a good report from them uh, back from Timothy, he still wanted to personally see them face to face. So uh, he prayed earnestly night and day about that. I want to see you face to face. But what about that second request? What does it mean when Paul prayed that he could perfect what's lacking in their faith? That's very simple. I mean, think about it. These Thessalonian Christians were fairly new Christians. And while they were faithful and strong and loving and had a solid foundation, hey, guess what? Nobody's perfect. We're all lacking. And Paul wants to come and help them in those areas that they were lacking in. So he prayed that he could come and help them. How would he do that? Well, he certainly would give them the truth of God. And while this letter was designed to do that in part, guess what? Face-to-face is better than a letter. Or video, right? Face-to-face is better. So Paul wants to come and and dialogue with them, talk with them, answer their on-the-spot questions, give them more biblical truth, encourage them, equip them, and help them to continue to go stronger and stronger in their faith. Isn't it true that we often settle for good instead of best? Anybody? We settle for good instead of best. Hey, we're all lacking in various areas in our spiritual lives and in our doctrine. And we who love the Lord should never settle with where we are at. No, no, no. We must continually be aiming for more. More, more, more. More of Him, more knowledge, more growth, more forward progress in Christ, more strength, more maturity, more of God's pleasure in our lives, more of Satan's hatred, more of sin being defeated, more and more and more. Please don't get comfortable. 
Don't settle for good when there is more to be had. More spiritual fruit. More spiritual growth. More of God's pleasure. God's good pleasure in your life. Paul understood that for the Thessalonians and certainly for himself. And I pray that we understand this as well. Keep pursuing. Keep growing. Keep moving ahead, spiritually speaking. Don't settle for where you're at. Mediocrity and complacency isn't becoming a true lover of God. So Paul wants to see them face to face, so he earnestly prays about that. Look what he adds in verse 11. May our God and Father Himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. So Paul prays that God will direct His way to them. Note that this verse tells us a lot about Paul's view of God. See, while Paul doesn't explicitly state the doctrine of the Trinity, his prayer contains the the substance of that doctrine. Notice that Paul believes in and he prays to a single God. In the Greek text, which is the original, verse 11 begins with the singular pronoun, he. Also, the verb with which Paul asked God to direct him is a masculine singular verb. Okay, you say, what does all that mean? Well, this. That verse 11 could be translated for us today as saying this. Now may he direct our way to you. Paul is praying to God in the singular, but then he defines that singular God as our God and Father and as our Lord Jesus. You see that? He understands that the one God exists in multiple persons, three to be exact, but two of those persons are seen clearly here in verse 11. Also note this, that Paul prays to Jesus in the same way that he prays to the Father, and so he joins them together as the objects of this prayer. This shows us that Paul considers Jesus to be equal to the Father in dignity and in power, God. Commentator Andrew Young said, Such consideration would be possible only if he understood that Jesus was essentially one in nature with the Father. That's absolutely right. Another noted this, To address the Lord Jesus as the object of their prayer equally with the Father is to ascribe full deity to Him. To make Christ one with the Father as one who hears and who understands and answers prayer is to bracket Him with the Father as equal in power and in glory. And that's right. The God of the Bible is one God who eternally exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. That's a mystery to us, absolutely, but it's biblical and it's true nonetheless, our amazing God. Note also that Paul calls Jesus Lord while in the context of his unity with the Father. And then Paul clearly believed not only that the Father and the Son are one in nature as God, but also that they are unified in purpose and in will. See, the Father is every bit as loving toward believers as Jesus is. And the two, God the Father and God the Son, are working in concert for the salvation of the church. And Paul knows this, so he prays to our triune God about this. And Paul clearly believed that God is able to intervene sovereignly in human affairs so that Paul could somehow be able to return to Thessalonica. See, Paul believed that God's control over the events of life extended even to his travel plans. So he prayed about that. Paul didn't think that God was too busy managing the universe to help, to care for him, and to lead him where he's supposed to go. Isn't that good? So he prayed. 
Hey, when in doubt, what should you do? Pray. Pray much. Pray more. Pray about everything. Pray. What else did Paul pray for, for these Thessalonian Christians? This second. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love. Verse 12. May the Lord make you increase and abound in love (laughs) to one another and to all just as we do to you. Isn't that interesting? I mean, Paul, he's commended the love that the Thessalonians had for each other and for those around them already. And yet, look, Paul prays for their love to continue to increase and to continue to abound more. See, more. I love that. More. Think about this. What if we, Faith Community Church, really began to seriously passionately and consistently pray for love to increase and abound for each of the members of this body. What a great prayer. I mean, a church that's increasing and abounding in love, that church would be a mighty instrument in the hands of the Lord Almighty, Lord God Almighty. And why not be earnest about praying this for us? Hey, we have not because we ask not. And while we should be praying for the physical needs of this church body, absolutely. Let's also be praying earnestly for the spiritual needs of this church body. And specifically, how about this prayer? That our love, that our godly love will increase and abound. Who knows what God can and will do in us and through us when we pray to Him like that. The word increase means to have an abundance, to have more than enough. And to have a surplus. The word abound means to overflow and to cause to excel. Okay, in what? Love. Love. Yes, they already had it. But the prayer is that that may increase to overflowing fullness. (laughs) Note that this love is a specific love, God's love, agape love. Which is a distinct love that's unique only to true Christians. Because agape love comes from God Himself to His children and only to His children. As Romans 5, 5 says, the love of God is set abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us. So, only true Christians have this godly agape love, this covenant love, this Abba, Father, family love because the Holy Spirit gives that love to us when we become Christians. And the call, the command is to show this godly love to those around us for this is what Christians do. This is who we are. This is the atmosphere of our lives. This is how people know that we truly are Christians, right? They'll know we are Christians by our love. So what exactly is agape love? Agape love is a love of choice. Agape love chooses to love even that which is undeserving of love. Agape love has to do with the mind. See, it's not simply a, an emotion that, that wells up within our hearts, but it's a principle by which we deliberately live by. Agape love is a love that loves without changing. It's a self-giving love that gives without demanding or expecting repayment. It's a love that can be given to the unlovable and unappealing because it comes from God. One said, John's not speaking of natural human love, but of divine love, selfless love, love that seeks the best for the recipient, and a quality of life that believers can demonstrate only when they are filled with, controlled by, and walking in the Holy Spirit. He alone can produce this supernatural love in our hearts. That's right, and He does. (laughs) And He does. And our call is to love like that, now that we are able to, because we have God's Spirit living inside of us, By the power of that Spirit. So, 
That love is seen in that familiar passage in 1 Corinthians 13. Will you go ahead and turn there? How, how many of you saw that coming? A mile away, all right. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4. Okay, again, talking about agape love. The love that must be displayed in those of us who love the Lord more and more and more. The love that Paul prayed would increase and abound in these Thessalonian believers and that should increase and abound in us. Look what it says. Love suffers long. Do you? Do you? Are you patient and are you forbearing with others? Love is kind. Are you a kind person? Are you just mean and hard and harsh, brash and cold? Love is kind. Love does not envy. Is that true of you? You think the best and you want the best for others even when you don't get what they have? Love does not parade itself. See, it's not boastful. Instead of being about self, real love lowers self. Does that describe you? Love is not puffed up, conceited, self-consuming. Are you that way? Or are you humble? Are you selfless? Are you Christ-like? That's, that's love. Love does not behave rudely. No. <laughs> love doesn't do that. Love is polite. Love is gracious. It's respectful. It's courteous. It's nice. Is that true of you? Love does not seek its own. No, it seeks others first. Well, it seeks God first and then others and then you're after that. Does that mark your life, others ahead of you? Love is not provoked. This is a big one. See, it's not easily angered, irritated, upset, offended. Are you? Or are you slow to anger and do you show a lot of grace to people? That's the way of love. Love thinks no evil. Literally, love keeps no record of wrong. See, it forgives. It doesn't harbor bitterness. It doesn't make memories out of a person's evil deeds that have been done to you. No, it's fast to forgive. That's the way of love. That's the way we should be. Is that true of you? Too many Christians refuse to forgive, but that is not godly love at all. Are you quick to forgive even when you've been clearly wronged? Love does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. See, love never rejoices in sin, yours or someone else's, but it rejoices in the truth when it's spoken and when it's lived out. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. And while other other people may let emotions dictate their love, we in Christ choose to love with a godly love even when it's not easy to love. Because that's what we're called to do. That is who we are. One notes, love bears all hurts, wounds, sins, and disappointments and covers them with a blanket of silence. It feels sympathetic, redemptive, and even bears the pain if it can. Love believes the best about someone, is never cynical, and is never suspicious in spite of the way it's been wounded. And when love's believing is betrayed, love turns to hope because God is still God and God can do anything. And even when hope grows... Thin and all hope seems lost. Love still endures. It endures the deep hurt that seems so final with a triumphant confidence that God, the God who gives His children peace is still on the throne. Love is never overwhelmed. It cares too much to give up. Love will die caring. That 
is the kind of love that's supposed to mark us in Christ. It's the love that Paul prayed would increase and abound in these Thessalonian Christians. And it's a love that should be increasing and abounding in us today. What about you? Do you love like that? And are you growing more and more and more in love like this? It's an important question because some Christians are deceiving themselves. They say they've been Christians for years and yet they're just mean and angry and resentful and harsh and cold and unforgiving and bitter and callous and extremely unloving, which is the opposite of what Christians are called to be known for. So this is a challenge for all of us. And note that this is Paul's prayer for Christians who are already good at loving others. But that's not good enough. No, more is better. And Paul's prayer is a wonderful prayer, not only for the Thessalonians, but for all of us, even us today. Why? Because an overflowing presence of agape love is indeed the tangible evidence of a strong, growing, thriving faith. This abounding love will first of all express itself in relation to each other. And then it will express itself in our relationship with everyone else. And not just Christians in other places, but all people generally. Note that for these persecuted Thessalonians, that meant loving their enemies. Even their their enemies who were persecuting them just as Christ commanded in Matthew chapter 5. That's not natural. No, that's that's supernatural to love your enemies, which is exactly the kind of love that God's given to us and the kind of love that God expects us to display and to abound in more and more and more. Love. So, loving others isn't the aim or the goal. Did you hear that? Loving others is not the aim or the goal. No. Abounding and excelling in love for God and others more and more and more. Overflowing in that love. Always increasing in that love. And having a, having a surplus of that love. Shocking others with that love. That is the goal for the glory of God. And that's a great and needed prayer and a great and needed challenge for us today. Third, <clears throat> Paul prayed that the Lord would establish their hearts blameless in holiness. Verse 13. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. The word establish means to make firm, to, to make solid and to strengthen. Here Paul prays that the hearts of the Thessalonian Christians would be solid, stable and strong. How's that going to happen? Here's how it's going to happen. When love leads to holiness. See here, Paul prays for God's love to fortify their hearts. Why? So that they are then stimulated toward a changed life. Earnestly desiring to please the God whom they love. So Paul prays that their love will increase because he knows that when their love increases for others, yes, but always motivated and always compelled by their love for God, look, that will then lead to a more set apart and godly life for the glory and pleasure of God because that's what love does. Love produces results. Love is seen. Love responds with action. And here, for Christians who are motivated by love, their action is seen in their holiness more and more. They're growing in holiness. Look, blameless in holiness before our God and Father, what does that mean? It certainly doesn't mean that we can attain perfect sinlessness in this life, not at all. That's impossible this side of heaven, anybody know that? 
<laughs> Instead, it means that our record of conduct should be one of a growing, godly, and Christian, Christ-like life. See, in one sense, we in Christ already are holy, set apart. And in another sense, we have a long way to go. <laughs> Look, the word holy means to be set apart, and it speaks of a separation from that which is common and unclean, and of a consecration to God, who himself is holy, perfect, and set apart. So again, in one sense, every Christian is holy, positionally holy. We are saints, right? That's Scripture says. We are saints if you're a Christian because all Christians have been supernaturally set apart by the Holy Spirit from the world, from the power of sin and the fallen flesh and from the dominion of the devil. And we have been set apart from that unto God. That's who we are. The idea with this term is taking something filthy, washing it and setting it apart as something brand new and useful for a different purpose, which is a picture of salvation for those of us who were filthy with sin but who have been made new and clean by Christ and who have been set apart as God's very own possession. See, the minute you believed on Christ for forgiveness and life, uh, for forgiveness and life as your Lord and Savior, you were then justified. You were declared righteous in the sight of God. Why? Because as a Christian, you gave Jesus all your sin that condemned you to hell. He was punished brutally for all that sin on the cross as he felt the full wrath of God against every believer's sin. And in return, He gave you His perfect righteousness that now covers you. So now, in Christ, only in Christ, and because of Christ, you are clean, pure, forgiven, set apart from the dirt and stain of sin that condemns you, and you're going to heaven. That's a Christian. So when it comes to position, when it comes to how God now sees you, He sees someone who is indeed a saint. (laughs) He sees perfection because you've been justified. The sin has been paid for. The sin that condemned you and stained you has been paid for. You've been washed clean once and for all by grace through faith in Christ alone. So in that sense, every Christian can be called a saint, a holy one, set apart unto God. In another sense, practically speaking, we all have a long way to go when it comes to holiness. Anybody? Because none of us is holy like God is holy, which is to be the aim of every true lover of God. So, having been set apart as holy, we are now called to holiness in character and in conduct. As Peter wrote in 1 Peter 1.15, just as he who called you is holy, look, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So, while Paul emphasizes that it's only God's work in us that enables us to make progress in holiness, at the same time, look, We are responsible to respond to God's work by striving now, and now that we can because we have God's Spirit in us, by striving after holiness compelled by love for God. So, we're to pray for it, and we also are to pursue it. This holiness, lovers of God that we are. Or as Paul said in Philippians 2.12, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, not working for salvation, you already have it, but working out what God has already worked in, the holy life, the godly life, the, the Christ-like life, more and more and more. J.C. Ryle in his great book on holiness, which I highly recommend, tells us a few things of what a holy person is like and examine yourself as these are read. He says this, one, Holiness is the habit of agreeing with the mind of God in accordance as we find His mind described in Scripture. So, 
you're going to live your life according to the word of God. Two, a holy person will endeavor to turn away from every known sin and to keep every known commandment. We can't do that perfectly, but that's our aim. Three, a holy person will strive to be like our Lord Jesus Christ because he's the perfect example. Four, a holy person will pursue meekness, endurance, gentleness, patience, kindness, and control of their tongue. Five, a holy person will pursue self-control and self-denial. Six, a holy person will pursue love and brotherly kindness. Seven, a holy person will pursue a spirit of mercy and benevolence towards others. Eight, a holy person will pursue purity of heart. Nine, a holy person will pursue the fear of God. Because when we fear God more than anything and anyone else, we're going to put Him first. We revere and love Him and fear Him more than all else. So we're going to earnestly seek to glorify Him with a godly life. Ten, a person will pursue humility, a holy person. Eleven, a holy person will pursue faithfulness in all their duties and relationships in life. Twelve, last but not least, a holy person will pursue spiritual mindedness. How are you doing? God is holy and we, His children who passionately love Him, we are called to be holy and set apart and and perfect like He he is. And that's our aim, that's our goal, that's our command because we love Him and a holy life pleases Him. And look, that's not only uh, Paul's prayer, but holiness is a command. And in love, this is what we pursue until glory. And who cares if we're not going to attain it in this life? That's our goal. We'll attain it in the next Note that being better than those around us isn't the goal. And being different from the world isn't the goal. No, being holy like God, compelled by love, is the goal. Note also that this is before our God and Father. What does that mean? It means that we do everything that we do under the watching eye of God. It means that what others think about us doesn't really matter. No. Instead, The Christian must always be concerned about the evaluation that God has of us because God sees and God knows the truth and God isn't fooled. Now, I don't think Paul mentions this to make the Thessalonians afraid. I I think it's mentioned to motivate them even more, even as Paul continues to pray for them. God sees. God knows. He knows your faithfulness, your love, your, your holy life more and more and more. So keep it up. Keep going. Don't grow weary. Never quit because soon you'll be in glory. See? Look how Paul concludes this prayer. Verse 13. Before our God and Father, look, at the coming of our Lord with all His saints. I believe that this fact gives us even more motivation for holiness. Why? Because Jesus is coming back for us and being ready is wise and the holy person is a ready person. Look in this book, the return of Christ is something that God's people are eagerly waiting for, chapter 1, verse 10. It's something that motivates evangelism, chapter 2, verse 19. It's something that encourages us in holy living, right here, chapter 3, verse 13. It's something that comforts us in our sorrow, chapter 4, verse 18. And then it's something that stimulates us to have even more confidence in the Lord. So Paul uses the coming of the Lord to motivate the Thessalonians to holy living. Here's the thought. Hey, Jesus is coming back. Get ready. I mean, that's good motivation, right? First, here's how you get ready. Be a saved child of God. Be a Christian. Because Christians 
are saved and will go to heaven to be with God and His people forever in eternal glory, while non-Christians will be judged and condemned to eternity in hell. So, surrender to Christ in repentant faith and be saved from the wrath to come. That is first. I got good news. Jesus is loving and compassionate and good and gracious, and He saves all who surrender to Him in true, saving, repentant faith. That's good news. We're all sinners, right? Sin banishes us from heaven. Sin's against the holy and infinite and eternal wages, and God is righteous and just, therefore God must punish sin every single one. But here's the good news. Jesus, God the Son, left heaven and He came here. He took on human flesh. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross and then three days later, He rose up from the dead. And look, on the cross, the sin of every person who would ever believe was put onto Jesus and Jesus was punished for all that sin so that everyone who believes can go to heaven now instead of hell because of Jesus. See, Jesus took the believer's place. Jesus faced our punishment of hell on that cross. Jesus paid our wages so everyone who surrenders to Jesus in true repentant faith can be saved, forgiven, and go to heaven instead of hell. See, Jesus is our answer. He's our only one. Jesus saves, Jesus rescues, Jesus delivers. Won't you repent and turn to Him in saving faith and trusting your soul into His perfect, loving, good care? He's right here. So first, be ready by being a Christian. And then second, as a Christian, be ready by be pursuing holiness, compelled by love more and more. For that person who's doing that is going to be a ready person. See? Are you ready? Scholars debate whether the expression with all his saints refers to the angels who will attend Christ's return, or to the believers who had previously died and whose souls had gone to the presence of Christ in heaven. Most believe that this will include both angels and believers, which again is a great motivation for holiness right now. Hey, think about this. We are destined for perfect holiness in the future when we're glorified together with other Christians in the final resurrection. Therefore, be ready for that great time by living a growing, holy life right now more and more. Again, are you ready? Paul wants the Thessalonians to be ready, thus this prayer. Lord, help this us to pray this same thing this same prayer for ourselves and for each other. And Lord, help us to live out those things more and more in our own lives for the glory of God. Hey, the time's coming. The time's coming. I believe the time is short. And I believe that soon we're all going to be in glory. Amen. Let's be ready. And let's not waste our precious short time when we could be glorifying God with us. Lord, help us come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us, O Lord, to be a ready people. Help us, O Lord, to be a people who love greatly, first you and then others, and help us to love you so much that we love what you love, therefore, that we are earnestly pursuing the holy, godly, Christ-like life battling sin, defeating it more and more, pursuing those things which glorify your name. 
Strengthen us and help us to strengthen and encourage one another in these great truths. We love you. Thank you. Thank you that the future is bright for us in Christ. We ask you to bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen.